Please stand for the reading of God's word. Tonight's scripture comes from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 14. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the, one, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, good evening. It's good to see you all. Uh, If this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We have been traveling through the book of Romans for some time. We took a three-month break, but we are going to pick up again uh, this evening. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and meet me in Romans chapter 10. Um, We're going to begin in verse 5. Now, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand and keep it raised high, and one of these uh, handsome men will be able to see you, hand you out a Bible. Um, If you are taking the copy that we're handing out, we're going to be on page 615. Uh, 615. As you turn there, just kind of heads up, this is the first Sunday of the month, which for us is our Outward Focus Sunday. So hopefully you guys brought the granola bars for the homeless people here in Tempe. Uh, Normally we have big announcements of something we're doing outside of ourselves as a church with redemption. However, we're going to postpone that announcement to next week because we're going to put a bunch of them together and that next week we will be doing something that we've never done before. So it'll be the first time for us, and that is we're going to be commissioning missionaries to uh, Turkey. And these are full-time missionaries. We've supported missionaries before um, out of this particular congregation, but we've never sent people from our own congregation uh, to live permanently in a place to share the gospel. And so we have a family that's going to be going to Turkey that we'll commission next week. We'll also be commissioning um, people, a group of people who are going to China uh, for the summer, which is another uh, area in which we are doing ministry at. And we'll also will be announcing um, our next redemption church plant. And so um, next week, you'll be a lot of commissioning, a lot of things we get to hear from. So make sure you guys are here for that next week. Um, here's what we're going to do for the sake of our time tonight is I want to be able to catch you guys up to Romans. I, I realize it's been three months since we taught Romans, which didn't seem that long to me considering the fact that we had been in Romans before that for six years. And so jumping back into Romans, um, I thought, oh, we probably need to catch up. And so I'm going to try to take 50-something weeks that we've already, actually 36 weeks that we've already taught on in Romans, and then kind of, um, kind of catch us up. So in Romans chapter 1, what we, fought, what we saw was the book was written by, the na- by a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was a church planner who went around um, uh, the Roman Greco world, and he planted churches and started churches there. Well, Romans in itself is a letter that was written to the church in Rome. And in, in chapter 1, verse 5, what you see is Paul is saying, I'm writing this letter that it may bring about obedience of faith. Which is interesting, what he's saying is that faith and obedience, they go together. And then further along in that chapter, he says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, in it is the power of God for all who would believe, for the Jew as well as the Gentile. And then for the next eight chapters, he begins to lay out piece by piece, point by point, the gospel. In fact, when you come to the conclusion of Romans chapter 8, he has these staggering promises, and that is, though we were separated by sin, which was chapter 2 and chapter 3, it says that every single person in this world, by nature and by choice, that we are sinners, that we were naughty by nature. We talked about that for several weeks. Um, After that, some of you guys still didn't get it, Um, 1993, hip-hop hooray, oh, come on, step your game up, step your game up, right? 
Paul knew it. You guys got to know it, right? So when we got into Romans chapter 5, we heard these, these two people. And it was either we were in Adam by birth and there was sin, um, or now by faith we were in Christ and there was justification. That beautiful term and topic that we talked about, the one-time act of which God himself makes us right before himself by trusting and resting in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7 talked about this, how we've been ushered into the family of God. Now in Romans chapter 8, he says, nothing could separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. He goes, think of, think of something, he goes, and it can't even separate you. Nor height, nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing could separate us. And then we got to Romans chapter 9, which is arguably one of the harder chapters in Romans. Because Paul begins to answer the question, okay, if this is the promise that nothing can separate us, has God reneged on his first promise? That promise is in Genesis chapter 12 when he, when he promised to bless the nations through the people of Israel, through the ethnic Jewish people. And Paul is saying, well, what's the deal? How come all Jewish people aren't saved? And then what Paul begins to do in Romans chapter 9, we, we spent several weeks unpacking the doctrine of predestination and election, which is really easy. We kind of walked through it simply. Um, we spent some time on that. And what I said then was this was God's sovereign act of grace in which he was working upstream, meaning it was God's doing by his own choice, by his might, um, there's a part I said that was going to come about downstream, meaning where we entered in, how we have to respond to the gospel. Otherwise, it's known as human responsibility. So you have God's sovereignty, Romans chapter 9, God's doing it, God's securing this promise, God is displaying his grace, it's all God, and yet there's a part we play, human responsibility, that's, that's downstream. And that's where we pick up in Romans chapter 10 and even Romans chapter 11. In fact, Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 11, the conclusion of a section primarily talking about Israel, primarily talking about ethnic Jewish people. What, what Paul is, is essentially doing here is answering the question, why aren't all ethnic Jewish people believers in the Messiah? Because if anybody should have got this, it should have been them, because they had the patriarchs, they had the stories, they had the temple, they had the tabernacle, they had the miracles, they had the exodus. Why aren't they all believing in the saving work of Christ Jesus as the Messiah? And what Paul does for us in our text this evening, 5 through 21, to the end of the chapter, what he begins to show for us is, one, that when the gospel is presented, when you begin to hear about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus, it is something that you respond to, and it's something that you have to respond to. Uphill, all God. Upstream, all God. Downstream, you have to respond to this. Every person in this room. It is a matter of life and death. The Bible says that everything, when it comes to eternity, hinges on what you believe or don't believe, what you trust or what you don't trust about a man who was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he's saying, you have to respond to this. And then the second part of the message is upon receiving and responding to this gospel, not only do you just receive it and tuck it away, but if it's good, if it's true, if it's truly good news, it's something you want to share with people, right? I mean, you just think about this with anything that you have. That you, when you've tasted and seen that God is good, you, got, you want to share it. I mean, think about something you've ever tasted in your life that's been good. If you've ever had a drink or you've had some food and you've tried it, you usually go, hey, man, this is really good. Try this, right? Um, unless you're selfish, right? Then you're like, is that good? No. It's terrible, right? Because you want to keep it to yourself. And so that's where we are uh, this evening. You have to be able to respond to the gospel, and upon responding to the gospel, that you need to share it with others. And so before we jump into Romans chapter 10, verse 5, would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we thank you for... What we've covered in your word thus far, God, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather today, and we're thankful for even the most simple things, Lord, air conditioning in a room where it's so hot outside.
but the biggest thing, Lord, of you extending your favor and grace to us in Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would completely let me slip away, that the name and fame of Christ would be exalted, the glory of God would be put on display. God, I don't know the stories of every single person in this room, but you do, and so I pray that you would draw us to yourself, encourage us, Lord, through your word and by your spirit. Help us to see the beauty of the gospel that is, that is ours now in Christ Jesus. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, about nine years ago, I was speaking to a woman, a woman older than me, and I wanted to hear her story. And I wanted to hear her story because I knew that she was a Christian, and every, ever since I'd known this woman that she was a Christian, but I knew she had a, a life before she had trusted in Jesus. And so I wanted to hear the whole story and how she got to where she was. And so she began to tell a story. She says, I grew up in the South. Um, I was a young girl, a very shy girl, and I basically was just compliant, and I did what anybody wanted me to do. When it came to religion, um, when you grew up in the South, she said there was two religions, football and Jesus. And so both of those went together, and so it was all about sports, and it was all about church, and I knew how to play the game at church. And so I knew how to sing when it was time to sing. I knew how to pretend. I never really understood who God was, but that's just the way it was. And she goes, fast forward, I found myself at 21 years old. I had three kids, um, all three different dads, and I was married, but my husband was on the other side of the country because we were separated. My mother came to me and said, hey, you need to reconcile this relationship. She said, though I did not want to be with this man, and the reason why my mom said I should is because she said, this is the only guy that will take care of you and your kids, so pack your bags and move across country. That's exactly what she did. She packed her bags, she took her children, her three kids, and moved across country to reconcile with this man, her husband, that she didn't want to be with. And she says this, me moving my kids across the country, I had no idea what God had in store for me. The best thing happened to me, and the best thing happened for me. And that is that my husband's mother, so her mother-in-law, became to me like a relationship like Ruth and Naomi. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth is tucked away in the Old Testament. It's a story of a woman named Ruth who is a Moabite. She's not an Israelite, and she has a mother-in-law named Naomi. And Ruth's husband dies. And then Naomi's two kids die, her husband dies, and she goes, I'm getting out of Moab because bad things happen to be in Moab. She goes, I'm going to move back to Jerusalem. I'm going to move back to my people. And at this point, she tells Ruth, you need to stay here with your people. I'm going to go to, your, to my people. And what you have are these beautiful words from Ruth to Naomi. Beautiful words that many of you guys use in your weddings, which to me makes no sense because it has nothing to do with the wedding. In fact, it's a mother-in-law talking to a mother, for goodness sake, right? But beautiful words nonetheless. It says, um, she says to her, your people will be my people. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people. Your God will be, become my God. It's essentially what she's saying is, girl, wherever you go, I'm following you, right? So, so she leaves, and Ruth goes with her. And there's this beautiful relationship where you read the book of Ruth. Ruth becomes a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. So this lady is telling me her testimony, and she's saying, this woman, my mother-in-law, taught me about Jesus in ways that no one's ever taught me about Jesus. For the first time, I realized that I can have a relationship with the God of the universe that I can entrust my entire life upon God's mercy and his grace. And she goes, when that began to happen, my life began to transform. And she goes, not only did I begin to receive this gospel, not only did I begin to believe in the work of Christ, I've made it my, my pledge, I've made it my thing to make sure that I told everybody about this, everybody about this gospel, because I realized that God himself um, didn't have favors, but he extended himself in Christ Jesus, and I wanted to make that name known. And so you had this beautiful relationship of a woman who poured into another woman, and this woman said, I received Jesus. Not just received Jesus, but I want to proclaim his name to the people around me. And I know this story firsthand because the woman that I'm talking about is my mother. When I first became a Christian, I wanted to hear her story. 
Because I, I connected the dots, right? I know my brother and I, my sister, we don't have the same last names. I know you've been walking with Jesus since I've been alive, but what was going down before that, right? <laughs> I wanted, which is awkward when you talk to your mom, right? There's some awkward things, like it's like, oh, I didn't want to know that too much. Let's fast forward, <laughs> right? But the reality of it is, I, I love that. And one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about discipleship is because someone has discipled me. I have to disciple somebody else. One, the Bible in itself says that that's what we are here as a church. We are to make disciples, that someone has shared the gospel with you. Whether it was a VBS teacher, whether it was a camp counselor, whether it was someone on the TV screen, whoever maybe, someone shared the gospel with those of you who have trusted in Jesus, and you ought to share the gospel with somebody else. Like the only way that people can be made right before God is by trusting in Jesus. And that's Paul's whole point here is the gospel is going forth. The only way that you can have righteousness is by faith in Jesus. And upon receiving that, you share it. You share that faith. Paul's saying the, the only way to have a secure relationship with God is by faith in Jesus. There's, there's no other way. And so he begins primarily speaking to a Jewish, Jewish and Gentile audience, but focusing in, um, tell them they should be here at church, whoever that is calling you. They're missing out. <laughs> I'm here at church right now. Could you come real quick? Yeah, he goes long, so you won't miss a whole lot. Right? <laughs> So, so what you have is, you, you have, we have to respond to, to, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and also we have to be able to share it. And so Paul is talking to this Jewish audience, and here's where we pick up in verse 5. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Here's the context here. Paul is talking about a righteousness that comes from the law and a righteousness that comes from my faith. They're not two different righteousness. One is impossible, and one can only be received by faith. The first one that he talks about in verse 5, he said, there is a righteousness that comes from the law. And we spent chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 talking about that. But we're saying, that's impossible. That if you were able to live up to the 613 laws that the Mosaic law had prescribed, then you would be righteous. But the whole purpose of the law was to show you of your inability that you could not live up to the law, that you would reach out for God, realizing that God is reaching out for you. And then Paul begins to reach deep into their history and to the greater narrative of pointing back to Moses in verse 6 through 8. In verse 6 through 8, he begins to quote Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. The reason why I believe Paul goes back to Moses is because Paul understands stuff that many of us don't understand, and that is the gospel doesn't begin in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. The gospel begins in Genesis. The the gospel in itself is the good news of a rescue plan, of redemption, of which God is on to redeem his creation. Now, the essential truths of Jesus' life, his death, and resurrection, we totally need that. If you lose that, you don't have the gospel. However, many of us have a very truncated understanding of the gospel that only starts in the New Testament. Paul understands, especially to a Jewish audience. i got to give you the fuller story. So let's go back to the one whom you do trust. You may not trust in Jesus, but let's go back to the one whom you do trust, Moses. And every Hebrew person would have known Deuteronomy. In fact, Deuteronomy was was essentially a handbook of, of ethics, how you ought to live. And it was a response to the great act of redemption in the Old Testament. And the great act of redemption in the Old Testament was that of the Exodus. It was the the mighty act of which God himself sovereignly moved in, working through Aaron and Moses to free his people out of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh. 
And so God rescues them. He provides a means for them to act in faith called the Passover, of which the angel of death would pass over them. God rescued them. He parted the sea. They came into the promised land that God himself had rescued them. Now, in the promised land, he gave them the law in Leviticus, and then he gave them ethics in Deuteronomy, or what is known sometimes as the second law. And when you read through the book of Deuteronomy, you see a lot of ethical things and how people ought to live. Because God was shaping his people for mission, his mission. He was essentially saying, don't be like the group of people in whom you just left, the Egyptians. And at the same time, I don't want you to be like the people in whom I am taking you to in the land of Canaan, the Canaanites. I want you to be a unique people who were set aside. And the way that will happen is you respond to me and his love and the grace that has been extended to them through the exodus being redeemed, and that they would live a certain life, that ethically and morally that they would begin to reflect the character and work of God. Now, some of you go, that's where I stop with Christianity. I get to the point where God is loving, love hearing about that, but whenever there comes a point where you're saying that my morality has to be shaped and changed by this God, to me that just seems ridiculous for people who are free, intellectual thinking people that we have a great deal of autonomy to ourselves and we should be free to make whatever moral decisions that we believe is right. And so why would a God say in order to be in covenant with him that there's a certain way that you have to live? Because it seems like in order for me to have a relationship with God, I have to have faith with him, but I also have to obey or have the same morality that he is calling for. And here's what I would say. One, you understand the lordship of God better than most Christians. That truly to be a relationship with God is that Jesus is Lord, that he is the ruler. And, and by being Lord, he does have rules. And there are ethics, there are a way in which we ought to live and respond to him. Second thing I would say to you, though, is when it comes to morality— the whole idea of being uh, intellectually free and having the autonomy to be able to take, make whatever moral decisions that you deem as being right, um, that there's so, no such thing as moral authority. Well, think about this. Has there ever been anybody in history, is there anybody now or in human history that have done things that you would look at and say, that is just morally wrong for all people at all times? And usually we'll say, yeah, there, there are certain things that we can look at in our history and go, these people are doing things that are morally wrong no matter what they believe. So at some level, you do believe that there's a moral authority. It just depends on where it comes from. And not only there's a moral authority, um, the question is then, why couldn't God, the one who created the universe, um, who looks at it being broken because of our sin, how couldn't he have moral authority to say, the way in which you could best live in the world in which I created good, and now that it's been tainted by sin, is to live a certain way in response in a relationship with me where obedience and faith go together. And so here's the ethics that people ought to live in a broken world. Why couldn't God say that? Another thing is, there, no one's really free. The whole idea of being free, that you, if you're trying to pursue freedom, that in itself becomes a center for you. And whatever your center may be, it becomes your Lord. Whether your center may be a pursuit of a career, whether your, 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 um, your center may be a relationship, maybe your center may be accomplishment, whatever it may be, maybe it's human approval, that you have a Lord and you have a Lord that has rules. If it's career, there's certain things you have to do. There's certain places you have to live. There's a certain education that you need to have to be able to advance in that career. Maybe there's a rule within that, that, um, that industry that you're a part of that you have to do certain things in order to get to where you want to get. If it's human approval of whether it's people or, um, um, that you live with or it's the people around you, there's certain things you need to say and not say. There's certain things you need to wear and not wear. There's certain things you need to do and not do. And order, there's rules there, whatever they may be. You have a Lord. It just depends on who your Lord is. Is your Lord one who gives rules only? Or is he also a Lord who loves? 
what the Bible gives us is a Lord definitely who has rules and has ethics and how we ought to live, but he also is a one who loves. So whatever standards that God calls for us, whatever moral standards that he says that needs to be there, moral standards that are, that are practic- basically we cannot achieve, they're unfeasible for us. What he does now in Christ is he says, I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And, and even more particularly here, talking to Jewish people, he's saying the righteousness that you're trying to pursue, you'll never get. But if you really want the righteousness of God, you will trust in the righteous one who has been righteous on your behalf in Christ. And he said, it's not going to be by works. It's by a Lord who has laws and a Lord who loves. In fact, if you look at verse um, 6 through 8 here, here's what Paul says again. He says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to the heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Meaning you're not going to be, there's nothing you can do to bring Jesus down. He does that because he loves you. He does that because he sees the gap. He sees the barriers. And he does it because he loves you, not to give you an ethical straitjacket, but to bring you into his family and to right relationship with you. And he says, don't, don't, don't say that you should travel to the abyss as to raise Christ up from the dead. He goes, there's no way you can do that. God does that. God raises Jesus from the dead to give you life, to give you new life, because he's not only a Lord who gives rules and laws, but he's a Lord who loves. And, and what Paul is saying then now is saying, all of this righteousness that you want, this right relationship with God, It comes by acknowledging him as Lord, but it's by faith, meaning it is resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then what Paul begins to do here in verses 9, he begins to to say some of the more famous verses that we've read in Christianity, probably the most quoted verses that we've read in Christianity. Here's what he says in verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Be saved. What I just read, guys, is the best news you'll ever hear. I mean, there's nothing you could do for this. The only thing you do is respond. You confess with your mouth and that you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Now, now let me explain Lord here. And I said this earlier and I alluded to it. Many of us as Christians, I don't think we really understand what it means for Jesus to be Lord. I think we understand Jesus is my Savior. I'm going to do some dumb stuff and he's going to forgive me. I love this concept of grace. We may understand that Jesus transforms me by the power of the Holy Spirit, so where I'm at today, he's going to make me a little bit better. But Lord is something that says authority, that you were bought at a high price, and that you not belong to yourself, but you belong to him. That means every single thing of who you are, every faculty of your, of your, of your members of your body, that your talents, your resources, your gifts, they all belong to God, and it's being shaped by his Holy Spirit under the authority of his word. And for the original audience of, the, of this letter, when they would acknowledge and profess and confess out loud that, they were, that Jesus was Lord, that meant something for them. That wasn't, I just signed a card and I said a prayer with somebody. It, it, it was saying that there were multiple lords, and the primary lord in the Roman Greco world was Caesar. You gave money to Caesar. You gave your time to Caesar. You worked for Caesar. Your life went to Caesar. And so standing up and acknowledging, most times at a baptism, and saying, I profess that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life, and there's no other who's the Lord of my life. That, that in itself was saying, um, I am denying the way of this culture, and I'm living under the reign and fame of God. It, it was not an easy believism thing. 
Sadly, I think we do try to make, for whatever reasons, we try to make Christianity seem far more easier than what it really is. Think about it. God is saying, you were bought at a high price. I died for you, and I purchased you with my blood. You belong to him. It's a loving relationship. It is a gracious relationship. It is a beautiful relationship. But you and yourself are no longer the free to do what you want to do. But true freedom is now being enabled to do exactly and be who exactly God has made you to be in his lordship, redeemed and recreated in the work of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying, this is available for anybody. You, you just confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died and God raised him from the dead. Paul's not saying by saying that you're saved. He's saying that is the outworking of something that you believed, that you, you believed in this gospel. You believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful truth. And he says, and this is for anybody and everybody. He says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. What I love about that, whenever I hear in the scripture um, and something so beautiful like this, anybody and everybody, I love it. Like when you read John 3.16 and it says anybody who believes, because anybody means someone who has had three kids out of wedlock with three different guys and someone who saved themselves from marriage, someone who's just bankrupt and had been a mess with their life, and then someone who's got it all together, someone who's grown up in church and someone who's never been to a church service, that all have equal access, equal opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is not saying, I have favorites. There's certain people that I came for and there's certain people I didn't come for. I came to extend, right? This is the responsibility now. This is the downstream part. Whatever you can do in wrestling and tripping over election and predestination, fine. However, the responsibility on you is that you have heard the gospel. You have to respond to it. And response to it is not just knowing facts about who Jesus is or knowing things about Jesus. It's responding with faith. That means trusting and resting your entire life on who he is and your whole life being given to him. Now, those of you in this room who are Christian, you have to ask yourself the question, is my whole life given to him or just parts of my life that I really want him to work on? Is, is my whole life given to him and his lordship or just maybe certain areas? And there's other areas that I'm trying to figure out myself. Uh, another thing that it says here, it says that you will be saved. And a lot of times we just, we just assume that everybody knows the Christian language, like vernacular that we use, right? People don't always know what saved is. I remember in college people would say, are you saved? Are you saved? Are you saved? And it's like, I, I say I saved some stuff on the computer. Matter of fact, yeah, yeah, saved, right? You have no idea, right? So let, let me explain that, right? When people say, are you saved, or you've heard that language before, there's kind of three tenses of the word sal uh, salvation or saved. One is that the gospel, the work of Christ, is God is saving us, meaning there's this ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our life now in which God is making us more and more like Jesus. And then there's this future tense, and well, one day we will be saved from the presence of sin, that we won't even have the opportunity to sin. Can't wait for that day. And then there's a saved past tense where God has already declared a decisive victory um, over sin, Satan, and death on the cross in Jesus Christ, and he's conquered death by raising him from the dead. And so now we, those who have trusted in Jesus, are saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God and the judgment of God that was mentioned in chapter 2 and chapter 3, that he's saying that you have been saved by that, that Jesus now takes, God redirects the, his anger and his righteous indignation towards your sin, and he directs it towards Jesus, and Jesus absorbs it. The Bible uses the word propitiated, which means that he satisfies the wrath of God. 
He does that for every single person who trusts in him and professes with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord. And that's, that's that beauty of the good news. And says, anybody who wants it. So if you've never trusted in Jesus and you want to trust in Jesus, it's not because God himself is trying to hide himself from you. It has everything to do with you not trusting or not believing, not in him not loving. He, he loves so much that he gave himself and he extends it that you may have the opportunity and your own volition to make a choice to follow him as your Lord and Savior. And for, for those of us in the room who have trusted in him, we, we would say together, it's the best thing you could ever do. It's the best thing you ever do. It doesn't mean your life's going to be great. You're not going to get a car with that. Um, it doesn't, doesn't mean that it, it promises you that life's going to go for, up here for you. But what it does promise is God, whom you were made for. What it does promise you is everlasting life to live with him. What it does promise you is a right relationship with the maker. What it does promise you is life eternity. What it does promise you is to be loved beyond anything that you can ever imagine. Because the way God loves is better than anybody in this room and anybody in this world. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then when you forsake him, he died on the cross for you. He forgives you. He constantly welcomes you in. He's constantly wooing you by the Holy Spirit. What, what this offer is of the gospel is, is not just a simple, oh, my life may get better. No, your life will be transformed because it is good news. Amen? So Paul says that, and we respond to it. We respond to it by believing in him and by trusting him. And the way you respond to it is by repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is you're walking this way. All of a sudden, you turn, and you see something beautiful in Christ. Your life may not be all put together. You may not even have all the ethics down. You may not even have your sexuality down. You may not have your finances down. You may not have anything down. But if you could see Jesus, the gospel is that he meets you where you are. And repentance is saying, I acknowledge that the way that I'm going, the worldview and perspective in which I'm living out of is not it. But I turn now to this holistic, comprehensive understanding of who God is in Christ Jesus. And now my life is reoriented around him as being the center. And that's not a one-time act that we pray the sinner's prayer with unbelievers, people who don't trust in Jesus or follow Christ. That is a daily act, guys. Every day you wake up and you profess and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because there's always something else vying for the center of your heart. There's always a human approval thing. There's also a, always a fear thing. There's always a comfort thing. There's always something there. that You have to repent and believe again. And so the sinner's prayer is not just for an unbeliever to become a Christian. The sinner's prayer is for sinners who love Jesus. And so we're constantly praying and asking God to reveal himself to us that we may repent and believe in this gospel. And we respond to it daily. It's how we become Christians, and it's also how we grow as Christians. It's our responsibility to respond to God in Christ through faith, by resting in him, not in our own work. And so Paul pauses here and goes, okay, you respond to that. If, if, if it's truly good news to you, and you respond to that, that's not something you can keep to, in your, your own life. You can't just keep that to yourself. We, we major on the language of having a personal relationship with Jesus or a personal devotion time. The reality of it is it may be personal and it needs to be personal, but it, is, it can't remain there. That now we have been wrapped up into the mission of God and part of being wrapped up in the mission of God is that when you have tasted and seen that he's good, you got to share, you got to tell people, you got to tell everybody, like this is good stuff. And that's where Paul begins to lead into for the second part of this, of this text. Verse 14, it says, okay, well, how can they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him and whom they've never heard? And, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. I love that. And Paul begins to answer these rhetorical, ask these rhetorical questions. He goes, okay, well, that's great. You will be saved by believing in Jesus, but how are they going to call upon him? Meaning if you call upon the Lord, God will meet you exactly where you are, no matter the circumstances or situations in your life. But he says, but how are they going to call on him who they have not heard about? He goes, well, and then how are they going to hear about him if people aren't preaching? And how are they going to preach unless they're sent? And then he quotes from Isaiah, and he says, Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Meaning there's got to be people who are sent, who are sharing the gospel of Jesus. I mean, if you believe this, right? I mean, if I believe this with the very core of my being, that Jesus is Lord and ruler and Savior, that he is a good, gracious king who has come to redeem the world, I have to tell people that. I mean, I'll tell people anything. I'll talk about a soccer game. Um, I'll, I'll talk about anything. Why could I not tell them about the good news of Jesus? True story. I, I, I grew up around church, and so I knew stories, and I knew things about church, but I didn't, I didn't have that. I didn't have what I have now. Man, I didn't know Jesus like I know him now. And, um, and, and basically to me, church was a bunch of things that you need to do. Um, religion was a basically, basically a bunch of things you had to get your life together. And for a while as a kid, I walked with it, because as a kid, you're pretty innocent for the most part. You don't even know the bad. Now, your parents know. Your parents know. You're evil right? But, but, it, but, it, but as, as, as kids, you're like, I'm totally fine. Horns are growing out of my head, but I'm fine, right? Well, the older I got and I began to realize I cannot live up to whatever these things are, and I, I jetted. I remember when I came to college, I thought, this is great. No one can make me go to church anymore, and so this is fine. Well, years in the college, towards the end of my college, when I began to, to pray this prayer, never forget the day when I prayed it, never, just, just confess with my, my mouth and believe with my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, and it was like the scales had uh, unlifted off my eyes, and I began to read the Bible. And I don't know if you ever had that experience where you had read the Bible before when maybe you were a young Christian or you weren't a Christian at all, and then you go back and you read the Bible, and stuff begins to make sense because the, the Holy Spirit is illuminating. I loved it. I remember praying one day, God, I was, I was walking through uh, the book of um, 1 Corinthians. I said, teach me what love is. And I just got finished reading 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I said, Lord, if you could just teach me love. That morning I woke up and I got to the next chapter. And it's like chapter 13 is on love. And I thought, oh, God, what else should I ask for today, right? It's like, <laughs> this is amazing. Well, I remember going back home because I grew up with a bunch of friends who did not love Jesus. I had one friend who loved God, and he, and he really did love Jesus, and I'll give it to him because we ripped on this dude so hard, but he was just right there taking blows, right? And, and I went back to him, went home, and I said, hey, how come you never told me about Jesus, Right? Like, how, how, how could you have not told me this, right? It reminds me, my, my, my oldest son played soccer, which is a sport my wife played, and he loved, he did not like playing soccer at all, right? And then we, we signed him up for basketball, and he comes home from his first game, and he looks at Holly, and he says, Mom, how come you didn't tell me that basketball was so much better than soccer, right? And my wife just goes, right? And he goes, why? He goes, you could use your hands, Right? I, I, I felt like I went back to my buddy and I said, why did you not tell me about this? And he, and he says this, you know what, Ricardo? You might be the hardest person to share the gospel with. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, one, you're very opinionated. You're never wrong. You got a dominating personality. And I said, listen, this is not about me. <laughs> <laughs> this is about you. Why are you bringing up old stuff, right? <laughs> And, 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 and he just said, he's the reality of it is, he goes, I, I just never, I wrote in my journal, I said I was going to, I never got the confidence to do it. And I'm like, wow. 
And I love this dude, and he's a good friend of mine, but man, how many of us are in that same, sh- that same position? That we know we have people. We have family members. We got friends. We got coworkers that we've been there. Like, let's get lunch today. <laughs> I'm going to pray underneath my breath, <laughs> right? And we never get to the point to proclaim. We never get to that point. There was a guy um, about five years ago, um, Penn Gillette. Some of you guys may know him, Penn and Teller. He's an atheist, and he was on this kind of YouTube rant talking about um, if you, he goes, I, I don't see why people wouldn't proselytize, which essentially is evangelizing to get people to convert. He goes, if you believe something, why wouldn't you? And here's an atheist, and I want to read this quote that he says here. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not, getting eternal life, and you think that it is not really worth telling them that because it would make it socially awkward? Then he goes on, he says, and then the atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say that, who say just leave me alone and keep your own religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? Think about that. How much do you have to hate somebody? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. This is coming from an atheist. He goes, how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them about Jesus? Hear me. Um, There are people in your life who don't know about Jesus because you haven't told them. It's as simple as that. God has wrapped us, those of you in this room who are Christians, he has called you and wrapped you up into his plan. And the same way that he called Abraham, and the same way that he called Moses, and the same way he called Paul, and the same way he calls all of us now in the church, he's equipped us by the Holy Spirit with this beautiful message. And listen, you don't have to worry about authority. The authority does not come from you being the messenger. The authority comes from, or the, the authority comes from you telling the message, but it comes from God himself. It's the gospel. It, it, it's about the message more than it is about the messenger. That's why Paul says, how can they preach if they're not sent? We need people to be sent. And, and here's, here, here's what we, we would say. Oh, okay, that's professionals. Those are, those are pastors. Those are evangelists. Those are the people that are going to China. Those are the people going to Turkey. That's the church plan we're going to have. Those are the people. No. <laughs> no. The nature that we were sent is because we have a God who is by his nature ascending God. That when you understand that we are creating the image of God, God himself, the Father, sends the Son into this world to redeem and to accomplish the work of salvation. And then what the Father and Son do is now send the Spirit. It's why Jesus says, I got to go because I'm going to send you another, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And so the Father and the Son, they send the Spirit to equip the church, and the Spirit and Jesus send the church on God's mission to redeem the world. The part in which we play definitely is demonstration. That means there's a way in which we live and an ethics in the way that we live in response to the gospel, but there's also proclamation that we got to tell people about Jesus. Just think about this. When was the last time you told somebody about your relationship with Jesus? When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone that did not know God? And that's not to make us feel guilty. That, that, that's just to say we can't just gather together and in one breath say amen to professing with our mouth and believing with our heart that Jesus is Lord and then not realize that now we are sent to do the work of discipleship, to do the work of of evangelizing, to do the work of sharing this same thing in which we can all say when we believed, it was like our, heart, our hearts were set free. Why would we not want other people to have that? And, and, and so that, that's, a, that's something that we need to do. 
I, it's not my job to tell your friends about Jesus. It's, it's your role. It's my role to equip you and train you. And I need to tell people about Jesus. And I need to tell people by words, you know? You know that, that phrase, that, um, that quote that people always say was attributed to Francis of Assisi, which I'm not really sure it's true, and it says, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Guys, you're not preaching the gospel if you're not using words. It's, it's, it's always necessary to use words. It's always necessary. If, if it's going to be the gospel, then it has to be about Jesus. And the gospel in itself is not advice. It's not, hey, do these things, it's going to make you better. Um, do these things, change this, fix this, and your life will get better. It's not, it's, it's not a get-right plan. This is not a, a fix-it plan. This is not a self-help plan. This is gospel. Gospel in itself means an announcement. And the way it's used throughout the Bible is that of someone who's running back from a victory, from a war, who goes back into his mainland and says, we won. And for the whole country to have um, from that phrase, we won, that there's victory, that it in itself is good news and it would elicit praise and joy. And so when we talk about this decisive victory of Christ on our behalf on the cross in which he declared victory over sin, Satan, and death, and by being raised for the dead, that we too now will have a new life in him, that we, it should elicit in us joy. And in that joy would propel us and compel us through love to go knock on our neighbor's door and to tell them about the life and love of Jesus Christ. And, and what does that look like for you? I don't know. It doesn't look the same. It's not like you have to go through some curriculum of this is how you share the gospel, this is how you don't. Wherever you are in the relationships that are existing in you, just, just make a time to share people about Jesus. Whatever you do, don't do the bait and switch thing, okay? You guys know what that's like. It's, it's bad. And it's saying, oh, come to this dinner. What kind of, oh, don't worry about it, just a dinner. It's going to be some good food. And then, you know, they bring out the main chorus, and then they bring out the dessert, and it's like, oh, Brother James is going to get up and give his testimony. It's like, don't trick people, right? I've been in those situations before, and it's like, man, right? Stick around for the invitation. It's like, no, the invitation was to eat, and I ate, I'm leaving, right? No, no, right? Um, Here's one way it looks like, an example. There was a guy here at the church who's an RC leader, and he cuts hair. That's what he does for a living. And I love this story, and I got the permission to share this story. He's been cutting this guy's hair for eight years, and this guy comes to him finally and says, hey, um, do you know anything about Christianity? I want to know about Christianity. And he goes, oh, yeah. And so what I did was, he says, I gave him um, an overview of the Bible. And I thought, that's the longest haircut in the world, right? And so gives him the overview of the Bible, and he says, from there, I begin to engage with him, engage with him. He starts dating this girl, and then they begin to come to redemption right around the time we were going through the 40 days of prayer and fasting. Um, He was a name that I was praying for and praying for and praying for, and then lo and behold, the gospel began to drop in his life, meaning he began to believe in Jesus. Currently, this guy and his girlfriend are in this, the the guy who cuts hair, and they're RC, and being discipled by him and his RC, that's a part of it. And I share that to go, if someone could come to know Jesus through a haircut, come on, right? What else could God do? I mean, you think about your own stories. It's the random ways in which God introduced himself to you. And it's usually not just one person. Most of us are usually just planting seeds. Some of us are watering. God himself, God himself will make it grow. Amen? Now, I, I want to give you some realistic expectations as we close. Um, it is your responsibility to share the gospel to your, friend, your friends and your family members. It's not your responsibility to get them to respond. I've been in that before. I'm telling you, God, man, listen, when it comes to theology, I remember being, it was my fault if I shared the gospel and people didn't, I must have said it wrong. I got to go back. Man, I, I think I spoke in Spanish that time. I need to go back, right? And it was just like, it was all on me. Listen, God is the one who gets the increase. That should take the pressure off. It's your responsibility to share. God is the one who has to awaken and quicken the hearts. Not everybody who you share with is going to believe, and not everybody's going to believe all the time. I mean, think about your own life. How many times did you have to hear the gospel before the penny began to drop, and you just said, ah, aha. 
And, and so here's what Paul says um, in verse 18. Or first he says that, verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, meaning you have to speak about Jesus. But he says this, just because you hear doesn't mean that you believe. And just because you understand doesn't mean that you trust. Verse 18, it says, but I ask, have they not heard? And he's talking about the Jewish people that are not yet Christians. He goes, indeed they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He quotes here from Psalm 19. And then again, he says, they can understand but not trust. He goes, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation. I will make you angry. And we're going to talk more about that next week. And then lastly, what he says is this in verse 20. And then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What, what, what Paul is saying is, your heart can get to a point where it's so hard that by your own volition, that you reject and you reject and you reject. Go, going back to the beginning of our time, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14, what Paul quotes here in, in Romans 10, 6 through 8, is at the very end of that, he says, now I'm laying before you life and death. Choose life. What Paul is saying now, the fullness of that is now in Christ Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection on your behalf. And so by your own volition, by your own choice, um, what I'm saying to you and what the Bible implores you, the invitation does not come from a minister. The invitation comes from God himself. Choose life or death in Christ Jesus. If you've never trusted in the gospel, if your heart has been so hard to that and you want to trust in Jesus, choose life. Everything hinges, hinges on who he is, the God-man Christ Jesus who died for your sins if you would trust in him and live in him. For those of us who already are Christians, we have to re-examine our own life. Are we like the Israelites where we've been around it so much that we've been inoculated to it? That Jesus himself is something that doesn't mean what it used to mean anymore. Are we a people now that need to be re-excited or look afresh into the gospel with a new wonder? Because the message is not going to change because God's not going to change. So it's on all of us to respond to that good news in Christ Jesus and having responded to it, to share the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality that you have given us the opportunity to choose something that is life-transforming. And not just personally, but it trans the gospel transforms individuals, families, societies, and eventually one day will transform this world. God, you have given us the opportunity to be a part of a mission in which you have set out in place from the very beginning of the Bible. And God, you've given it to us in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we confess that it is easy for us to trust in other things. It is easy for us to look to power. It is easy for us to look, to look to comfort in many different ways, Lord. It is easy for us to bow down to the fake God of human approval, Lord, which cripples so many of us. God, we ask that we would be set free truly in understanding you as our Lord and our Savior. So we do confess with our mouths and we do believe in our hearts that you are Lord, Jesus, and that our God and Father raised you from the dead. We thank you that we can have salvation in you. God, I pray for every man, every woman, every child, every person in this room, that they would have the opportunity by the Holy Spirit and through the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to respond with their whole lives for the truth of Jesus.
And God, I pray that you would equip us and you would send us out to care for the people in our community through our words and our deeds, and namely, in the power and authority of Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.